at uh, Isaiah 27.7. It's nice to start a new day. Uh, at least for me, it's uh, more energetic than after uh, teaching all day. So uh, that's uh, encouraging. And um, he was talking about his blessings for the vineyard in the first six verses. And uh, this really finishes up this whole section on the judgments against the nations. So uh, would somebody read uh, chapter 27, verses uh, 7 through 13. Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this iniquity of Jacob, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So shall it be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. You see the two things that God does. You see in 7 through 11, God doing what? Sure. God's punishing, God's judging, God's bringing... uh, his enemies down particularly what are the kinds of sins that he's punishing the people for in 7 through 11 perhaps idolatry idolatry and what's the root cause of idolatry yourself, not trusting in God. So that's what you've got here. I mean, they're trusting in their own idols, and therefore God drives them away, he expels them, them with his fierce wind, the fortified city that represents their power and the things they do is forsaken like a desert uh, because they, they don't discern the Lord. They're not focused on the Lord. So God judges and punishes those who don't trust in God, those that don't put their confidence in God. And on the other hand, in verses 12 and 13, the other side of what we've been looking at in these final chapters, what does the Lord do in 12 and 13? He threshes, he separates the, the good from the bad. And what does he do with the good? Yes, gathers them one by one, which I think shows his care for each individual. He gathers them one by one to bring them to him. Notice verse 1 talked about the great sword that he uses against his enemies. Here you have the great trumpet that's blown that brings them back to him so that he can bless them. Again, 
So this really summarizes what we've seen in 24 to 27, the idea of God's punishment of the wicked, his blessing for the righteous. That's the general teaching that had been more specifically applied to various nations in 13 to 23. In 24 to 27, it's just generally God punishes those who are self-reliant and he blesses and gathers to him those that trust in him. Comments and questions on 27? The fortified city that will be desolate and the forsaken habitation just examples of their pride, their self-reliance that he's going to take down. I think so. I mean, he's dealt with that idea all through this uh, segment back in 25.2, for example. He turns the fortified cities in the city into a ruin, 25.3 as well. So the city, uh, even back in 24.10, city of chaos is broken down. So the city seems to represent... Um, the people who uh, build for themselves, you know, human accomplishment, human achievement. Other comments and thoughts on 27? And I'm not sure that I do either. I think he may be saying, but I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, that he, asking the question, does he strike his people as severely as he punishes his enemies? He's going to punish them, but he doesn't punish them as severely, as thoroughly. You know, he also blesses them. Uh, but there's probably other ways of understanding that verse as well. But that, that's the way I take it. Other comments or questions? Alright, when we start into chapter 28, we really start into a new subsection. The overall section here, from 6 to 39, trusting in God in their contemporary circumstances. But starting in chapter 28, he goes back to focusing on Israel and Judah. From 13 to 27, we've more focused on the other nations. But now we come back to focusing on them and some rather specific kinds of statements toward Israel and Judah and their need to trust in God and the temptations they have to trust in other things. So, uh, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valleys, of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. Okay, so he's talking about what nation here? Israel. Yes, because he speaks of Ephraim, so we're looking at the northern kingdom. And he says, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty. They were proud, they, they felt, they, they exalted their crown, their beautiful flower, but God doesn't see their glory the same way they do. 
he sees that the flower is fading and he sees that the crown is going to be trampled underfoot they were priding themselves in their power and all of that and yet what does he call them? drunkards and if you look on down starting in verse 7 we'll see really it's drunken leaders (laughs) you know it's pretty bad when the leaders are drunks people leaders who would you know focus on drinking what does that tell you about them they're not focused on leading what are they focused on themselves their own self-indulgence as opposed to their responsibilities they want to satisfy their own appetites and so here you've got this proud crown this glorious flower but what does the Lord come in with you know he always has at his disposal more than adequate means to accomplish his goal. Here he brings the hailstorm, and what does he do with the crown? Yeah, he casts it down to the earth, and it's trampled underfoot. And what happens to the flower? Yes, it fades, and then. It's swallowed up like the first ripe fig at the beginning of summer. Um, can you, you, none of us probably uh, grow figs in your backyard, do you? Uh, but you do know what figs are. I wonder what would you do with the first fig that got ripe at the beginning of the season? You need it. Well, yeah, you probably do that with the other figs too. You'd be excited to eat it. Why? Yes, you haven't had figs for a year. <laughs> Nearly a year. And the first sweet, delectable fig you get, man, you just devour it. You swallow it up. You know, you can't wait. You've been waiting for months to get that fig. That's how eagerly this fading flower would be swallowed up and destroyed. They feel like they're secure, they're relying on their beauty and on their authority and their power, but it's nothing. God comes in with a hailstone, he takes the crown with his hand and throws it to the ground and they trample it down with their feet. You know, he causes the flower to fade and be swallowed up. What's the true crown and beauty of God's people? God himself you see again the emphasis on trusting in God or trusting in themselves in that day the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown a glorious diadem to the remnant to those who are faithful to those who are able to look beyond the appearance and see the reality that God is the glory not anything that they make or that they turn to or that they trust in Comments and questions through verse 6. Okay. 7 to 13. He's also real with my dagger from strong drink. 
The priests and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine, they, are, they stagger from strong drink. They reel with having visions. While having visions, they totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, where he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to his people with stammering lips and foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backwards, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Alright, so who's he looking at here? The priests of the prophets. And what does he emphasize in their uh, behavior? Drunk. Yeah, they're drunken. How is it when you have drunken leaders? Yeah, absolutely. Drunken leaders are not going to be good leaders at all. Because they're not going to have the seriousness, the soberness, the clear thinking in order to lead well. That's not going to be a good thing. And, uh, you know, so that that's just really, uh, you know, uh, a disgrace to this people. Look back at Leviticus 10. We alluded to this the other day. But when Nadab and Abihu showed the irreverence for God by putting the strange fire uh, and burning the incense that way, God speaks to Aaron in Leviticus 10.9, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. I suspect that the problem with Nadab and Abihu, the reason that they were so... Uh, not careful to do what the Lord had commanded, they were probably drunk. And that that's probably the reason why he makes that statement here, warning them of the dangers of, of the leaders drinking. They need to have good judgment. They need to be leading in a thoughtful, serious, responsible way. But these guys are drunk so badly that what are they doing? They can't, even, they can't even walk a straight line and they can't judge, they can't judge wisely and yeah, they, they're just throwing up drunk. You know, they're not just uh, mildly drunk. They're profoundly drunk. And uh, how do they feel about what Isaiah is trying to teach them? Tedious Order on order. Yeah. Rules and rules. Yes. No regulations. Boring. <clears throat> and elementary. They feel like it's insulting them. <laughs> to whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken uh, from the bread? He's, he's, like, he's treating us like a bunch of Sunday school kids. You know, he's given us these ABCs, you know. Uh, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do something else. You know, we're adults. We can think of ourselves. You know, we don't need some Isaiah coming along and giving us all the rules again. 
You know, they're just really, uh, their pride is hurt and their freedom of expression is hurt by the fact that, that they just see Isaiah as, you know, it's just the law is the law is the law, rule after rule after rule. You know, they're, they're advanced beyond this. They're, they're, they're adults, they're mature. And he treats them like, you know, little babies. You know, this baby talk. They're just, just mimicking him. You ever see people like that today? You know, we, oh, uh, well, it reminds me, I don't know why it reminds me exactly, but, you know, these uh, commercials that I've heard on the radio a little bit about, you know, teach your children not to drink while they still don't know everything, you know, or whatever, because when they get to be teenagers, they think they know everything. And they make the point in the commercial. Now, if you were an adult, it's different. Isn't that amazing? You know, we have that idea. You know, when we're adults, then then we can handle things. You know, we can experience different things in life. That we're we're mature now. We don't need all these rules. You know, uh, I mean, the the line I've heard is something like, you know, this this could affect your judgment. You know, talking to the daughter. If you're an adult, it's different. Well, how is it different? <laughs> you know, the one thing that says, I guess, is you're still growing, <laughs> which. As far as I can tell, I don't know that most people view alcohol as something that impedes your growth. I don't know if there's something for that or not. It's like, wow. But, but that's what we think. You know, we're mature. We're advanced. So we don't need the law. You know, we don't need God's authority. You know, because we're, 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 we're smart now. We're intelligent now. Comments and thoughts through verse 10? Yes, John. Has he shifted at all who he's talking to since he's talking about uh, prophet and priest? Well, that's a debated question. I say no. Uh I think we're still in the drunkards of Ephraim from verse 1. And that he shifts in verse 14 when he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. But that is a debated issue. There are those who would, who would make a break at 7 and take that as referring to Judah. But there were priests and prophets in the northern kingdom, not necessarily faithful priests. But, so, I mean, that just seems easier to me. You've got the reference to Ephraim in verse 1 and the reference to Jerusalem in verse 14. How much of this? prophet's role would have been repeating the law for the I mean, what Isaiah is doing is not so much saying this is what you ought to do as go back and do the things that you have known you were supposed to do from the beginning and so but they, they seem to be saying stop telling us these things we already know well you look at the prophets I mean you think about Jeremiah you think about Amos you think about Zephaniah you think about Hosea and some of the prophets to the people. I mean, what did they mostly talk about? Going back to the old law. The sins of the people? The judgment God was bringing? Because they didn't keep the covenant? Because they weren't faithful to what God had said? Really? I mean, I, I started out uh, Thursday by saying, you know, essentially prophets were the preachers of the covenant. They're, they're the ones that are, are exhorting the people to turn back to the old paths and to the ways that God has taught. So really, I mean, there are times when God reveals some future event through the prophets, certainly. But more than anything, they just preach the necessity of following the will of God in their generation. Right. I guess what I'm asking is how much of the the actual law did they stand up and repeat? 
instead of saying, we need to keep the law, you're not keeping the law, this is what's going to happen when you don't, how much, because they don't seem to be saying, stop telling us we're doing wrong, they seem to be saying, stop telling us the basic principles of the law. Maybe they see that as being the same thing. Okay. I mean, because, I don't know that they mostly recite the law, but everything they say is, you need to do this, you need to do that, you shouldn't have done that, you know, and so forth. I still think to these people that would have been intellectually insulting. Why condemn us for idolatry and adultery and drunkenness and all that? We're adults, we can handle it. You know, we, 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 know, we know what we're doing. We're enlightened. You know, we know how to handle those things. Logan. I have a footnote uh, here on verse 10 where it says, Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on order, here a little there. That it translates into Hebrew and says that there were monosyllables imitating the babbling of a child mocking the prophet's preaching. So I think it's important to realize that they weren't just pushing this aside. They were turning around and going back at Isaiah and ridiculing him for being, I guess you could say, crazy to say these things. Uh, that may well be the case. I think it is possible that they're actually sort of, you know, parodying in what they're saying, Isaiah, and making it sound almost like baby talk. There's another take on that, which I think I prefer this one. The other possibility is they're so drunk they can't even make hardly a coherent sentence. You know, that may be the case as well. Uh, because it is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a weird statement what they say in, in verse 10. Other thoughts through 10? Just wondering, you said the verse, I'm talking. It sounds like it's Isaiah telling him that that's what God's saying to them. It depends on your translation. What have you got? Uh, well, mine says, for he says, and it gives like, you know, that big list. Then in verse 13 it says, so the word of the Lord will be. Yeah. And will be. Yeah. You've got the he capitalized. Yeah. Yeah. I think it should be small letter he. And uh, that, that they're really saying Isaiah. And in verse 9 too. To whom would he, Isaiah, teach knowledge? To whom would he, Isaiah, interpret the message? For he says Isaiah. So I think there is debate about that. But I think this is these drunken leaders blasting and caricaturing Isaiah for his, you know, trying to teach them the ABCs again. You know, this boring, drizzling repetition of all the rules and laws and constant condemnation, constant criticism. He's always saying, you got to do this, and you shouldn't do that. So you think it's them talking in 13-2 or just 10? No, I think it's just 10. I think in 13, 11 to 13, I think it's God's answer, really. Okay. Yeah. I think we Talk. can do that sometimes. Uh, you know, when, you know, we, especially us that know, you know, what's right and wrong, and when we're confronted with something, we're just like, yeah, we already know that. You know, I know I've done that with my parents, my dad's, but king at repeating things over and over and over again and I don't want to hear it but sometimes that's good and you need to hear that stuff you know to convict you well think about it when does it bother us to hear the repetition of God's will well when we're not doing it I mean, you know, it doesn't really hurt my feelings to hear the laws of God that I'm keeping you know, it's okay but the ones I'm not I really don't enjoy listening to. Isn't that true? And so anytime you hear hear somebody talking about it, it feels like they're harping on it. Yes, yes. Why are you nagging? Yeah. Why do you keep 
you know, it's just uh, keep, you know, beating on the same uh, key or whatever. Some some expression we use with that. <laughs> Forget what it is, but uh, yeah. No, I don't know. Something about the piano key that you keep hitting. I don't forget what that expression is. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like there is something like that. Maybe that's in uh, Portuguese. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably so. I don't know if they have piano keys in Swahili. Anyhow, in 11. <laughs> God's answer to him is okay so you don't like this unsophisticated you know language that Isaiah uses well God will accommodate you know God's a a versatile God and and they get a little bored with Isaiah just using the order 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 line 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 well he'll speak to the people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue now that'll be exotic. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll use a, a, a foreign, sophisticated language to speak to the people. Uh, I suspect he has in mind the language of the Assyrian invaders that are going to conquer them. You know, you don't like this? Well, okay. <laughs> I've got a language to talk to you in. You know, it's probably the only language they understand. The language of military power. <laughs> um, you know... They think I, what Isaiah is teaching is a bunch of, you know, meaningless noises. Well, that's, that's what they're going to get, all right. <laughs> In a language they don't understand. Um, this passage is used in 1 Corinthians 14.22 to say in the New Testament context of tongues that, that God used tongues here, foreign languages, as a, as a sign to the unbelieving nation who wouldn't listen to the truth in their own language. And so that that really that's the purpose of New Testament tongues essentially was to be a sign to unbelievers. Now in the context of 1 Corinthians 14 he says prophecy is a sign to believers but the way they were misusing the tongues prophecy convicted the unbelievers better than the tongues did. That's the whole thought of 1 Corinthians 14. But he does use this passage. And uh, they refused God's message, God's message of rest and comfort and hope. So God's word to them is going to be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, stared, and taken captive. I think they're going to learn their lesson hammer blow by hammer blow of the Assyrian conquest. They're going to hear it a line at a time, an order at a time, a uh, painful event at a time, because they wouldn't listen to Isaiah's plain teaching of God's message. Comments and questions? That is a pretty powerful text. It's pretty helpful, I think. And then he turns to Judah, 14 to 22. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord and scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the deep earthquake. Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not fan. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. From morning after morning, it will pass through, any time during the day or night, and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the Valley of Gibeon, to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Interesting passage. He's, he's speaking to whom? The rulers of Judah. What have they said? <coughs> yeah, we made a covenant with death. Now we made a, a pact, an agreement with death, uh, uh, an alliance with Sheol. <laughs> And this, this, this agreement they've hammered out with death, they think means what? Scourge will not reach us. Yes, this overwhelming scourge won't, won't hurt us as it passes by. Now what in the world are they talking about? The Assyrians would be the overwhelming scourge. They think they've got this deal worked out to where the overwhelming scourge, i.e. Assyria, won't, won't beat them, won't hurt them. So, what's this covenant with death? Probably from the mediums and Assyrians. Maybe, but I don't think so. Egypt. I think Egypt. I think they've made this deal with Egypt, and they think they've bought off death. It's, it's a deal based upon, in the end of verse 15, falsehood and deception. You know, most human treaties are a bunch of lies. But they think that this alliance they've made is going to keep the overwhelming scourge from reaching them. It's this confidence in our own ability, our own negotiations, our own human strength to be able to solve our problems. <coughs> And when we make our own covenant with death, our own pact with Sheol, and we think, Scourge won't hit me. I, I, I'm okay now. I've, got my own, I've, I've made my security. <coughs> no way. We cannot produce our own security. Does that make sense? Helps if you can see that. What would be their real security? Yes, because I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. God is the true security. He's the real salvation. And if you trust in Him, you won't be disturbed. So you see the two alternatives. Fifteen is their covenant. They're packed with death to keep the overwhelming scourge from, from uh, reaching them. Sixteen is God's security based upon the cornerstone he places firmly. Uh, 
and that is unmovable. Now look at the contrast between 15 and 17. In 15, they say, we have made. In 17, God says, I will make. And what's he going to make? Yes, justice and righteousness is going to be the pattern, the standard. And everything that doesn't measure up to justice and righteousness, what's going to happen? Yeah. He's going to have the hail sweep away the deception, the lies, the crooked deceptive treaties, the signed agreements they've got. He says, your covenant with death, it'll be canceled. Your pact with Sheol, it won't stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you'll become its traveling place. You'll be the main target of the overwhelming scourge. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. Morning after morning, it'll pass through. Anytime during the day or night, it'll be sheer terror. You think you've made the pact with death to keep the overwhelming scourge from reaching you? It's going to reach you morning and night. Every single day. Every time it comes through, it's going to get you. And all this pact you thought you made, these these self-made... security worthless void ineffective will we build our lives on our own plans and our own schemes on God's trustworthy cornerstone that is so much the issue in Isaiah this is this is a perfect chapter to really focus in on what Isaiah is talking about the whole time there's two choices we've got when we face a crisis. The Assyrian threat. What do we do? Run off to Egypt and make a treaty? Or turn to the Lord and rely on his cornerstone? What do we do when we face a crisis? Take matters into our own hands and do things that are wrong? Or turn to the Lord and serve him? That's our choices. Comments and questions through verse 19. Well, I think their treaty with Egypt they thought would keep them out of Sheol. Yeah, I think it's it's a their their pact, you know, is to preserve their lives by getting Egypt to come and defend them. It's kind of a defense treaty. You know, if the Assyrians attack, you come defend us, and that way we won't die. Shane. Maybe it's what God always does. He's always laying his true foundation. He's always got the real trustworthy solution. So I don't think the point is time. I think the point is you've got the contrast between God's firm foundation and man's, you know, vain and ineffective schemes. It's it's the uh, wise builder and the foolish builder from Matthew 7. Okay, so it's not like he's <coughs> a specific 
Yeah, I don't think so much. Yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts to the Yeah, Bob. Comforting to, to those who would listen to Isaiah. This is a comforting passage. Uh, those who didn't listen didn't matter. And, and certainly that's who Isaiah is talking to the most. <laughs> the ones that don't listen. But the ones that did listen. Uh, when they read that God is setting a cornerstone. Uh, and, and that it won't be disturbed. And that it's going to be truth and righteousness upon uh, as to how it's set. Uh, and that's a great comfort to those who trust in God. Absolutely. And it enables us to trust in God without fear of men. Without feeling insecure by all the, you know, in this case, uh, you know, international threats. Don't worry about it. God's got his cornerstone. It won't be moved. You follow justice and righteousness. You'll measure up. God will take care of you. Good point. Other thoughts through 19. J.D. My translation has in verse 16 uh, kind of a quote. There's a colon, a semicolon after uh, he says, the precious cornerstone of sure foundation. And my translation seems to make it seem that that line, whoever believes will not be in haste, that that is the cornerstone. Um, That this stone, this tested stone, is this idea that trust will save you, faith will save you. Uh, is that the cornerstone, or is that just a statement about the cornerstone? It's a statement about the cornerstone. I would prefer that. I mean, what we've got in the New American Standard is a period, and then he who believes in it will not be disturbed. The in it's in italics, but the translators obviously understood. Our faith is in the cornerstone God has securely placed, and if we're tied to it, then we'll be unmoved also. I think that's better. I love verse 20, especially for somebody of my uh, altitude. (laughs) Ever been in a bed that was too short? Kind of annoying. Some of you last night may have had a blanket that was too small. (laughs) What's he saying? (laughs) This security that they're placing their trust in is not sufficient. Exactly. Your self-made remedies are inadequate. The bed you've got is too short. It's not going to be long enough. The, the blanket's not going to cover you. You know, you've tried to invent this thing that doesn't work. It's not enough. You know, they'll be short-sheeted by the false hopes of Egypt protecting them. It won't work. Because the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. Now, I'm sure you remember Mount Perizim, don't you? It's amazing how the Bible writers assume we really know the text of the Bible. <laughs> you know, his first battle after he was made, officially made king. Yes. 2 Samuel 5 against the Philistines. And you remember uh, the Valley of Gibeon? Joshua, sun stayed up in the sky. Yes, exactly. Joshua 10. And uh, in both of those, what do you have? Well, God granting a great victory to his people over the Philistines, over the Canaanites. God will again rise up 
to destroy his enemies like he did then. So why does he call this an unusual task and an extraordinary work? Because this time the Exactly. <laughs> That's what makes this unusual. What a terrible tragedy. God is going to have to exercise his judgment against his enemies, i.e. his own nation. <laughs> and so he says, don't carry on as scoffers. <laughs> You're just making your fetters stronger. Look back at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Well, scoffers. I mean, as long as they keep, you know, despising what the Lord says and trying to do things their own way, they are just making it harder on themselves. They are not going to get out of the Lord's decisive decree that way. Pretty powerful statements, Alan. I don't know why. They kind of made me think of this one time when I was a kid, and I'd get mad, and you know, I'd get mad at my dad, and yet whenever I'd get mad, he'd just send me back to my room, and my situation would just get worse and worse, <laughs> and until I'd actually apologize and just make it right. Yes, and we're just hurting ourselves. Yeah. Other comments? Anything from twenty-two? passage. Don't forget chapter 28. This is another one on my list of my top dozen chapters in uh, Isaiah probably or 15 or 20 or whatever. Uh, 23 to you understand that well I'm sure we can move on to the next chapter <laughs> like not what you were expecting to read right here was it um, but he says give ear and hear my voice listen and hear my words there's something important but this is sort of a parabolic passage you got to listen to this and think about it so in 24 and 25 what is he saying Yeah, exactly. You know, the farmer doesn't always do the very same activity. Not true, Trent? Do you plow every day, all year long? You know, do you plant all the time? Do you cultivate all the time? Do you harvest all the time? There's the different stages. You know, you're a really stupid farmer who, you know, planted the seed and then went back and plowed the next day and plowed the seed up, you know? It's not the way you do it. You, you know, God gives enough sense to the farmer to realize that there's an appropriate time, an appropriate stage for every uh, phase and facet of the farming procedure. God instructs and teaches him properly. And farmers, you know, they understand that. A rather basic kind of a lesson. Um, 27 and 28, what's he saying? 
use the right tool for the, for the activity. And what kind of activity here? Well, threshing, different types of yeah, you would thresh different crops different ways, harvest them different ways, because obviously they grow in different ways. Um, I mean, think about, you know, obviously we are a little more mechanized and uh, technolog technologically uh, sophisticated than they were, but uh, how many different harvesting, um, you know, mechanisms are there in the world? I mean, would you use the same, uh, you know, machine that, that harvests cotton to harvest corn? No. I don't know a whole lot about that. Uh, Trent, what, what have you got? You've got some things that are probably different, total different machines, and some things that just take different attachments. Is that about right? So what would take totally different machines? Cotton and corn. <laughs> with, the, with the corn picker, what else can you do with different attachments? Okay. But even with like the corn, you wouldn't have the same attachments completely to the machine to do corn and to do soybeans? Right. Yeah. So we see the need because of the different nature of the plant to use a different apparatus. And, and they much more primitive, but, but you know, they got the threshing sledge and the cartwheel and the rod and the club and the, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, you, you suit the, the harvesting uh, process to the nature of the crop you're harvesting. Well, we, we understand 24 and 25. We understand 26 and 20, or 27 and 28. He comes down in 29. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who's made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. So the parable itself, I think we can get. The hard thing is to have any idea what this means in the context. Why does he tell us this? And there's probably more than one way of looking at this. Do you have an idea? Yeah, Bob. Interesting. This year, um, decided we grow a garden and decided to keep the seed to grow the garden with next year. And and so it was really interesting to me that the seed for one plant came out really easy. The seed for another plant came out really hard. <laughs> and, and I think that's what we're talking about here. You look you look at um, the the farmer's got his crop coming in. And one seed to, to grow the wheat doesn't take near the threshing as it is to get the, the cumin seed out. I, I noticed on basil, I mean, you had to, you had to really knock basil around to get the seed out of it. <laughs> and, but dill, we grew some dill, the dill, the seed just came right off. And you just peel it right off. And so there's a level of severity in the harvest to get the usefulness of the seed. Okay, yes. That's helpful. So what does this say? Well, what, what that says to me is that, that God's going to do what God needs to do to get fruit out of that garden. Yes. So this is really a lesson in how God deals with men, deals with his people. It's not one size fits all. And to some extent it depends on how hard and stubborn they are how severely he has to punish them. I mean, God's going to suit what he does to the nature of the plant and the situation. We've seen back in these previous chapters 
God as the Savior, God as the Judge. Sometimes He's blessing, sometimes He's punishing. Sometimes He punishes a little, sometimes He punishes a lot. God knows what He's doing. God will, will adapt His treatment to the nature of the people that He's dealing with. I think that's the basic lesson. That God knows what He's doing. And if, if God needs to bring a severe judgment... You know, it's the common seed you can't hardly get out. Then he'll bring the severe judgment. If we were uh, more moldable, it would take a lot less severe measures. Um, it's my uh, typical illustration of my two children. Uh, it took somewhat different measures to uh, uh, elicit proper behavior in my two children. You can figure out which took what. Uh, <laughs> But uh, Kyle may have still a few uh, bruises to uh, show for uh, what it took for him. So. <laughs> you know, you, you, but you do that as a parent. <laughs> if you try to just treat every child just exactly alike, you punish them just the same way, that's a mistake. Not every child has the same nature of heart, the same uh, stubbornness. And so you adapt your discipline to what the child needs, to what his behavior and attitude wants. God does the same thing. I think there's probably a general lesson for us in that. You know, maybe even just more broadly than what we're looking at here, we ought to learn not to handle every situation with a one one favorite technique, one size fits all. You know, different situations we call for different things, different people call for different things. You see how people are with that. I mean, you know, you take um, people who are good at giving advice. Some people are good at giving advice in the sense that they've got one piece of advice they constantly give. <laughs> no, no matter what the situation is, here's what you need to do. I mean, think about parenting advice. Some people, their advice is spank them. <laughs> you know, discipline. Or some people, it may be just the opposite. Well, you know, um, be, be gentle. You know, be patient. Well, you know, and, and, and that's true with a lot of, a lot of things. And um, we need to learn to be deeper than that. And to adapt what we do, you know, to the, to the situation. Because there are a lot of different plants. You get the seed out a lot of different ways. <coughs> Thoughts and comments? Uh, yeah. It reminds me of, I don't remember where I was, we were talking about this yesterday, but uh, when we were, maybe it was in 20, where we were kind of shocked at the severity uh, of God. It reminds us of, of Jeremiah, where God is very uh, straight and hard with him. And sometimes when we hear that, there needs to be different levels of severity or kindness. I think most people, well, a lot of people say that to me, and don't be so severe as have mercy on some who are doubting save others snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear hating even the garment polluted by the flesh that's Jude 22 and 23 three different categories takes three different kinds of treatment 1 Thessalonians 5.14 does about the same thing different people have different situations they need to be approached in different ways or they need different severity of, of treatment um, you know 
maybe you, I, I don't listen to the news much, I don't know a lot about what's going on in the world, but, but I hear bits and pieces of zero tolerance things like in schools and so forth that, you know, have just produced some ridiculous things. You know, I mean, you know, a kid brings in a plastic knife or something and it's counted as a weapon and he's expelled from school or whatever. Some things like that it's like, wait a minute, you know, I mean, there has to be some judgment about this to be proper about it. And, and I think you can see the same thing in churches. You know, I mean, you could have on the one hand, you know, the hardliner that, alright, here's the rule, you know, miss three services and, you know, you do this, miss six and you do this, you know, whatever. <laughs> or something like that. On the other hand, there's the other kind of guy that no matter what the person is, well, they mean well. You know, we need to be patient. You know, they've had a hard life. You know, whatever. I mean, wow. You, you realize any way we deal with people, even Christians, if we try to deal with everybody exactly the same way, we're going to fall flat on our face most of the time. And you look at Jesus. Would you say Jesus was always severe? Would you say he was always uh, very um, soft-spoken? I mean, you know, he adapted what he said and did to the nature of the people he was talking to. We may have beaten that dead horse considerably, but do you have uh, any other questions or comments on chapter 28? On the other hand, I think it's, for us as humans, it's a little difficult sometimes to know exactly what the right measure is. Uh, you know, how exactly to handle this situation. And I think that's, for me, that's why it's reassuring in verse 29. Yes. He, he ends this description of the various measures the Lord will use by saying, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. So we know that God's going to be judged, and, and there's some reassurance in that. Yes, and that's what we need, is the, the Lord's help in this. Trent. I said, you know, what Bob said, you don't know how to set a combine you just like this. And, and we leave the crop in the field. <laughs> and unfortunately, we, we can easily do that. But it is coming that God, God knows what he's doing and how to reach in your life. Absolutely. I think it's comforting, but it's also sobering. It's comforting to me because I like to think God's going to treat me. Nice. Uh, but ultimately, he knows what I need, and it may not be the, the soft time. Yes, that's exactly right. Really, that's comforting in a way. I'm thankful that God will be severe if I need it. Bob? This, in a big picture sense, just interesting to me, given the last chapter, talking about line of line, order on order, and talk about the simplicity of the teaching. I mean, consider the examples that have just been given. Um, these two examples are very basic. I mean, these are every man examples that are so simple to think about. It's the building. It's the building of a building that you would live in, and and how you do it properly. And I will say, they all knew how to do that. Yeah. And it's being used to, to show a very simple teaching of God, and then the growing of food. I mean, that, that was the society. It was an agrarian society. I mean, there, obviously there were some specialties going on too, but everybody had to figure out how to get their food. And most everyone grew some food. Uh, and so these are very simple concepts that are being used to show a very severe judgment. 
Yes. Now you see the Lord constantly using illustrations that are very uh, much in the daily life of the people. For us, some of these agricultural illustrations, unfortunately, you know, we're not an agricultural society hardly at all. Amazing to me, I grew up on a small farm, so I don't understand a lot about agriculture, but I understand more than, you know, most teenagers I talk to. And, you know, we almost have to re-educate ourselves in agriculture to understand some of these figures, but for them, it's exactly what they did every day. And so it was very applicable, very appropriate. So we'll carry Trent around uh, anywhere we go. <laughs> Shane. Um, you know, I is because they're going to have to listen carefully to get the point. Sometimes, you know, what do you do with the parables? You kept saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. Because maybe it's not something you're going to get just on the surface. 29, I think, is saying the Lord is the source of the wisdom and insight to adapt the technique to the situation. So in other words, he's saying this comes from the Lord listen to the Lord, not just me, and giving credit to the Lord. You need the Lord's wisdom to be able to do this. It, it might be because of the severity of what's about to be said. Consider the last thing said in verse 22. Mm-hmm. Where it says, oh, decisive. Here's what, the, here's what I've heard from the Lord God of hosts. This is about decisive destruction on all the earth. It, you better listen to that. Yes. Indeed. Other comments? Yeah, John. I think this can also tie into authority a little bit because um, I mean, you can to punish someone, you have to be in the authority position to punish. And when you when you punish somebody out of your authority level, that can be a problem. <laughs> um, no matter how you do it, you know whether you're harsh or whether you're kind about it. Sometimes you don't you're not in the place to teach or correct someone. Yes. Other thoughts? 29 verses 1 to 4. Ah, <coughs> uh, Ariel, Ariel. The city where David and Pam <laughs> Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall be a whisper. All right, Ariel, do you know what your name means? Um, That's some people's thought, but I think probably not here. Jerusalem? It's referring to Jerusalem. God's hearth. Yes, an altar hearth. I think that's probably what this means. He's calling Jerusalem God's altar hearth. 
which in the first analysis means it's the place where the sacrifices are offered. But I think we're going to see it means more than that. Because he says, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped, add your year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. Now they were very uh, serious about all the worship services. He said, just go ahead and do them all. You know, get them all in there. Don't miss a service. You know, go through your routine. Go through the repetition of these forms. But I'm going to bring distress to Ariel. She'll be a city of lamenting and mourning. She'll be like an Ariel to me. And when he says she'll be like an Ariel to me, he's saying she's going to be like my sacrifice. She's going to be the place that I make my fire on. A place of burning where I'll satisfy my wrath. I'm going to camp against you, set siege works against you, raise up battle towers against you, and you'll be brought low down to the dust. You know, you will uh, hardly be able to speak. God is going to fight against his people. He's going to make his city an altar hearth. No matter how diligent they are in keeping all the feasts, and doing all the worship services, which is a point we've made earlier in the book, that it takes a whole lot more than some worship services and going through some work rituals to be right with God. You know, and he almost taunts him with that. Because so often, the most disobedient and the most immoral are the most determined about getting all the feasts in. <laughs> They were doing that. He said, go ahead and do them all. And then I'm going to burn you like an altar heart. God's opposition to his own people. So we're really going back here to what he said in 21 of 28. You know, he's doing his unusual task, his extraordinary work of fighting against his own people, his own city. Comments and questions. So, do you think that uh, by Ariel, if it's uh, the city where they dealt with feasting their sacrifice, and Jerusalem was the place where a lot of that took place, do so you think? I think this is Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah. Other comments or questions? <clears throat> What's in verse 4? Maybe you said it and I missed it. What's what's the point of the speaking from the from the dust? I think they're gonna be ground into the dust. I think you're seeing them laid so low, they're just whispering, screeching out something from the dust. I think it's how low God's bringing them. How weak they'll be. Well, isn't that in contrast to 26:18, where they'll be in the dust, but their bodies will rise? So, I mean, that's that's afterwards. <coughs> this is the before to be brought down to the dust. Yeah, I'll buy that. Good point. Other thoughts? All right, five to uh, eight. Most Multitudes are ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire. 
and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, against all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Whereas when a thirsty man dreams he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be the fight against men's Okay, you see the versatility of God here. His tone changes abruptly, and now who's he seeing? <coughs> The enemies who become like what? Dust, chaff that blows away. Happens just like that, just instantly. God disposes of the enemies. You've seen God against Judah, but then once Judah is brought down and disciplined, then he turns to fight against the enemies. Remember chapter 10, Assyria, God's rod, then becomes the uh, object of God's wrath and judgment. You've got these enemies who wage war against Ariel, distress her, it's going to be like a dream. They're going to think, we've got her. You know, we're gonna, we, we've got Jerusalem, we've got God's people, they're gone. We, we've, we've already put an end to them. So it's going to be just like a dream. You ever had a dream that you were hungry and you were eating and woke up? That'd be bad, wouldn't it? I had a dream that you were so thirsty you were drinking something and then you woke up? I don't I, I rarely wake up to an alarm. Um, I think that's, this is the reason for that, I'm not sure. I rarely wake up in the middle of the night. So I rarely have a consciousness of having dreamed. Some of you guys are aware of dreams more than, than I am. I mean, do you, do you ever have dreams like that where you, you dream something that's really real and then you wake up? It's not at all? How does that feel? Confusing. Confusing? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's a good thing. Well, you have a dream about That's what it's going to be for the enemies. You know, they thought they had her. They were. They already encountered her as as uh, another feather in their cap. Think about Sennacherib. Man, he had her. <laughs> I mean, he he's got Hezekiah shut up, conquered all the other cities. No way anybody can help her. It's over. Judah's down. And then he woke up from the dream. <laughs> it wasn't quite like that, was it? Comments and questions. Logan. I think it's kind of, it almost seems like God's going to have to destroy all the nations before he finds people that will be obedient to him because Israel and Judah have turned on him. So he has to punish them. And then he was going to use Assyria and thought that he might see if he could get them to obey him. They're too prideful. And then he has to bring down Egypt. So it's, it's like, all of the nations, none of the nations want to turn to him. And so I think it's real interesting, first how all the nations are so just stupid that they won't turn to him, and also the, the patience in God that he waits long enough 
for them to turn to sort of turn back to the Indians and Jesus. And God's not above using a nation he knows is wicked to punish another one, Bob. That's such a good line of thinking. You, you can, can take it a little bit further. Consider that God is controlling these nations. Yes. And and look at the power of God to control the nations. And there's there's no one else who can can cause an entire nation to be judged and to have uh, the punishment brought upon by another nation. And then uh, and, and God to foretell it, say this is what's going to happen. And then the captors of that nation are going to be destroyed. And they're going to be ground to dust. And to me, this is a display in, in, along with that line of thinking that God, God is in charge. He is. He controls nations. And, and it, it's, 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 Amen. Good point. Other comments? Yeah, Jane. I'm confused. What's going on here? Uh, it's like a a dream. Uh, no, uh, is he saying that in verse five he's saying that the nations that are against them are like dust, right? Yes. They're significant, but then suddenly they'll still come upon them. Well, no, I think this is all one picture. Okay. You know, these nations thought they had Ariel. That's a dream. They're actually the ones who will be destroyed. They'll be pulverized and blown away. I think five is almost like the summary. Five and six. Uh, you know, it, it's what's going to happen to them. Seven and eight is their bubble was burst because they actually thought they were going to get Ariel, and what happens is they're destroyed. So I see it as kind of all one picture. David, could the dream maybe be kind of an illusion of Snickers on how they died in their sleep? Oh, that's an idea. That's cool. Yeah. Other thoughts. No, I think we're probably talking about the Assyrians uh, punishing Judah. You know, destroying everything but Jerusalem and then waking up one morning with 185,000 soldiers dead. I think, I think the historical context here is the Assyrian threat, their efforts to turn to Egypt and so forth. <coughs> Let's take a break.